Hello, I'm John Kelly, and this is a podcast of Mystery Train. For rights reasons, the music is shorter than in the original programme. Mystery Train hits the rails Sunday to Thursday at 7pm on RTE Lyric FM. Andy Williams there in a version of uh, Michelle. There are many, many versions of that song, including the rather well-known one by the Beatles who wrote it. And I'm playing that tonight on Mystery Train because we pick some someone on a Sunday night comes in to pick the music. And tonight it's the artist and curator, Michelle Brown. You're very welcome, Michelle. Thanks very much. Nice to have you here. You probably anticipated that I would open the show with Michelle it's in some form or another. Well, I'm not entirely surprised. Yes. <laughs> I get, it gets sung at me a lot. Does the song Michelle bother you, does it? No, no, I, no. it's not as bad as it used to be. But, like, I, I was named after the song because oh, like, I was born oh. in that period when it was brought out. So, you know, there were a lot of Michelles in my oh. class at school, you know? Really? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. You could have been Eleanor or some other name. Oh, you Julia, yeah. It wasn't. Didn't Claire come up around? Well, that's that's that Gilbert. Came. Gilbert, yeah. Yeah. That's, of course, that's where all the Claires came from. Yeah. Loads Claires, loads yeah. Michelles in the class. Yeah. There you go. Now, Michelle is an artist and a curator. She's based in Dublin, but she's from Galway. Where, where, Galway City or Galway yeah, County? Yeah, grew up in Galway City. In, in the yeah, city. Yeah. Where, whereabouts? So uh, we lived in a place called Cool Park on Bohermore. Cool. So like real townies. Cool yeah. Park, though. Yeah. Cool. Cool Park looks good on the address. Yeah. <laughs> But real tiny stuff, yeah? Yeah, real tinies. And so um, when we were about 14, we moved. My parents decided it'd be a good idea if we moved out to the country. So they now live about 10 miles out of Tomb Road. So, yeah, I remember being slightly afraid of the cows when we got there. I was like, what is this? This is, this is not normal. Well, that's curious, because if you're, if you're a townie in Galway, does Connemara mean nothing to you at all? I mean, is it not, part, not even part of your imaginative sort of hinterland or anything? Oh, no. Like, we would have spent a lot of our... We would have spent lots of our summer holidays, like oh, right, going okay. out to the beaches, out, you know, mm. out in Spiddle and yeah. going out to Fenor and, and places like that. Like, we would have spent time driving around there. That was oh, a real right. thing to do, spend time on the beaches and collecting little shells and, you know, being in puddles of water and the rocks around that coasty area that's very rocky, you know. Um, I don't think I went to the Iron Islands, though, until I was in my teens, like, as a kind of a crack thing, you yeah. know. Um, but yeah, no, it's very much part of it. Like, you feel very, you know, even if you're from the city, you do have a very, like, I'm from the west of Ireland kind of a feel about yeah, it, you know? Yeah, okay. yeah, And when you were at school, and I'm, I'm asking this question because I'm, you know, the sort of work that you do, um, I'm not even sure what the right term is for the work you do because it's kind of, it's, it's complex. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not drawing and painting in that sense of no. the artist, you know, as most people understand an artist to be, drawing, painting, sculpting. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm wondering before we even get into discussing the work you do, when you were at school, 
were you good at those things? Were you good at drawing and painting? Yeah, yeah. I was. I was like one of the arty people. Yeah. You know, the way there was always, there's always big kind of arty people in the class. So yeah. I was one of those. Yeah. So I was always drawing. And I was, it was kind of like, I liked making little things and crafts and stuff like that. So I, I was always good at it. And I was always, I was very good at art in secondary school and did it for my leave and search. And, you know, it was, it was something that was very much part of me. And like, you know, um, my mother would be very artistic. Um, her brother and her sister were both artists. And, um, they were, you know, my grandmother was a seamstress. There was like a real, you know, it was a real maker kind of yeah. quality to, um, to people in the family, you know. And like there are lots of people in the family who different do different kinds of artistic things, you know, like my cousin is Fiona Shockens, who's an actor. And so there was like people went in different directions, but there's definitely that strand. And when you were a, a kid at home, was it the kind of house where kids would sit at the kitchen table drawing pictures and copying things out of comics and all that sort of stuff? Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, definitely. Like, I suppose I had an unusual um, childhood because I'm a triplet. So I have um, two sisters who are the same age as me and we're identical, technically. Um, we don't look that alike anymore. But like, so, uh, like, there was the three of us and then my older sister and then my younger brother came along about seven years later. So there was a lot of us and there was a lot of activity and different kinds of activity and um, it was kind of mental. So I'd say sitting at the table drawing did happen, but it probably happened with a lot of chaos going on around it, you know. It was a very lively household. I bet. I want to talk about the triplet thing in, um, in particular in a moment, but let's have your first musical choice, Michelle. Where do, we want, where do you want to start? So I picked um, Sunday Morning Coming Down by Chris Christopherson, uh -huh. particularly this version of the song, because, um, like, my dad um, is, uh, like, he's he plays guitar. He's really into music. Um, he's very into he's very into the performance of music, actually, and the kind of the collective experience of music. Like, you might not describe it that way, but it was a big thing in our family to have, like, parties where people kind of came over and dad would take out the guitar and a bunch of people would play a tune and there'd be loads of singing and it was kind of a collective thing to do and I suppose as we got older it was also about us kind of having party pieces as well you know and like having something to sing so this is a song that he has been playing since it came out I'd say and he still plays it and so often when the family get together you're just waiting there's kind of there's always slight tension you know you're just like wondering when's the guitar going to come out because once it comes out it's out and like you're kind of going okay here we go but this would be a song that he would um would sing and I suppose it also kind of has quality of like how people would feel after the party on a Saturday <laughs> oh, night, yeah, you know? Yeah. So there, yeah, he's... <laughs> there are very, very precise lyrics to this one. Uh, Chris Christopherson. Well, I woke up Sunday morning with no way to hold my head didn't hurt Sunday morning and that's Chris Christopherson Sunday morning coming down. This is Mystery Train, RTE Lyric FM, the Sunday night special where we get someone to pick the music. And tonight is the artist and curator Michelle Brown from Galway, currently based in Dublin. We'll be talking about what our current projects as the night goes on. We can't leave this. You, you said just before that, Michelle, that you're a triplet. Mm. Right. Now, I'm sure these situations aren't the same for everybody, but in your own experience, what is the, what is the dynamic of being a triplet? 
surely it's hugely complex. Yeah, I think it's hugely complex within a family, I think. Yeah. For us, we made sense to each other and we had a kind of a, you know, we grew up with each other, we like very connected to each other. So we understood each other and how we fit together. But I think it was harder for our family and harder for our other siblings because we were very much like this little unit. Um, and were you a unit? Were you, were, yeah. And for how long were you a unit? I'd say we were probably a unit up until we probably hit 15 or 16 and then it just, it, then it kind of started to shift a little bit. What, cha what changes that? The obvious um, suggestion might be boyfriends and... Yeah, but then I think when you become a teenager it's when you start to really kind of assert your own identity and you start to try and find your, your own interest and your your own self like you're really discovering who you are in a different way to being a child and being connected to your parents but then for me it was like also the connection to my sisters yeah. and so I think that's the shift so you suddenly kind of go oh you like that I don't really like that interesting and then that kind of progresses and then obviously you know we did also have different boyfriends thanks for god and um very different and like not necessarily very different interests like we had similar interests but i say that's tricky though when one of you has a boyfriend or the first one to have a boyfriend introducing some new powerful force into the trinity must uh, sure but like we were still really young like so the way they couldn't have too much power it's like <laughs> slightly different when we got a bit older you know yeah. and they, they you know the people we were going out with took a bigger kind of place yeah. in our lives let's say yeah. but you know um Actually, we were probably we were like any teenage girls who delighted for each other, like you know, right, it's like okay. fair play to you. And we did have a bit of crack with it, like we kind of I don't, I tormented. Don't, I don't people. even want to know because you all look alike, don't you? Yeah, we do look alike. Yeah, don't, you did, did you? Did what? you? Did you? What torment people? Pretend to be each other. We only did that once and really freaked person out and felt kind of guilty about it, so we stopped doing that. <laughs> now you all look the same. And in terms of the, when you're at home in the house and those parties you're talking about, yeah. you, the other thing you hear about families and, you know, who sing together, they, they automatically sing in, in some cases in harmony and all the rest of it. Did you do that? Yeah, but like, I suppose we were very much encouraged to take up playing musical instruments when we were younger. So like we started, we started doing guitar lessons, maybe when we were eight or nine, something like that. Um... Like we weren't particularly good, but we, we, you know, we took part in like the fesh kill and like those kinds of things um, when we were younger, when we were primary school. Um, and then like, I remember we, we started to go to see um, this um, teacher who was going to kind of teach us as a band when we were teenagers. Like we were probably about 13 or 14. And so one of us was on the drums, one was on the keyboard and another was on um, like the guitar. And then sometimes there was, a, there was a bass in there at some point as well, but I can't remember. Like we all kind of would give it a, a go of yeah. each instrument. So it was a bit trickier for me because I'm left-handed. So it was kind of like, oh yeah, that instrument won't work for me or whatever. Um, but yeah, like that was very funny because we'd kill each other, you know totally kill each other be like you're not playing in time whoever was playing the drums at the time was invariably um the other two i didn't i didn't really take to that but um yeah so we would kill each other so it didn't totally work but so now you all live in different countries yeah That's at one point we had our own continent as well each good. had our own continent wow. which was quite nice that must yeah. be hard though is it um i think they you know more like the transition i suppose there's very i have very clear cut off points where i talk about 
we and us, like I talk about my life, describe my life as we did, uh, you know, um, and then there's kind of a cutoff point where I start talking about I. And that was, I suppose, when we started college and then we really started to kind of move into our own fields of interest. And then very soon after we started college, we all started traveling. And then and since then, basically, we've kind of only been in the same, particularly with Marie, who now lives in Bali, like I don't think she hasn't lived in the same country as me for 20 years. And what about that thing you hear that Marie in Bali gets the cold and you start sneezing? Um, that has never happened to okay. us, but sometimes, they once I think, I remember ringing at just the right time when I think Catherine needed to have a conversation. Right. She was not feeling great and she needed to have, and I think I rang her at just the right time and I was like, oh, that's very nice, isn't it? But uh, no, we don't have any sixth sense or anything. All right. Now, these parties in your house for your dad singing Chris Christopherson and all the rest of it, what was your party piece? Oh, God, cheapers. We had a few different party pieces. See, I stood it there. We, yeah. Um, yeah, we had a few party pieces. Um, we used to sing The Boxer. Right. Yeah. And, oh, God, we had one moment where we were brought, trundled out. My dad um, plays golf and... Um, they were having some golf event and we were trundled out to play and we played the whiskey in the jar and to all forgot the words at exactly the same moment. And it was just kind of like, oh my God, so totally social death. You know, we'd have those moments where like, God, nobody saved us. Nobody in the group. We're all looking at each other going, okay, into the chorus. <laughs> but it was all kinds of music in the house. It was sometimes, you know, a house like that that's musical, it may be a trad house or it may be a classical house. You know, it's kind of quite strict about what goes on in those sessions, but it sounds like it's really democratic. Yeah, well, there wouldn't have been a lot of classical music. Mm. There would have been, you know, like folk and folk and kind of pop music and like everything. You know, yeah. there was like... We nearly were going to be listening to Barbra Streisand at one point. Um, that didn't make it to the list. You mean tonight? But uh, yeah, um, I thought that wasn't fair to your listeners. Um, was really out of the room. Say we've got quite a few Barbra Streisand fans out there. Maybe, <laughs> maybe. But um, yeah, there was lots of things. You know, ABBA, the Beatles. You know. And Paul Simon. And Paul Simon. You mentioned exactly. already the boxer, but the tune, the song you, you have on the list is me and Julio. I love it. It's I, such I crack. When he played in Dublin the last time, this this for me was the, the highlight. Of really? The really yeah, I was kind of sorry I didn't go to it. I was, I was thinking I should have, but it was, you know, he's great. He te Like, the songs tell great stories. The other one that's great is, um, is The Zoo. Such a great song, you know. But the one you want? This is the one I chose okay. for tonight, yeah. Done by the schoolyard from uh, Paul Simon, the choice tonight of Michelle Brown, who's my guest. Michelle's an artist and uh, curator. So we talked early on that when you were at school, you were good at art and you did art for leaving. Yeah. But I'm wondering if any of the work that you do at the moment was even hinted at when you were doing, say, the leaving, that the possibilities of doing this sort of performance work and community when I, we'll talk about all this later, what exactly it is. It's complex. Mm. Uh, interventions, all this yeah. kind of stuff. Um, was there any discussion or introduction to art for you at school that didn't involve drawing and painting and making things? No, not really. Like, when I was at school, 
like we had a very nice art teacher, but she was she was an older woman, and she, you know, she was very into kind of learning the specifics of it, which is actually what the Leave and Search is about. And I suppose she was I like the this most woman. I'm, I'm, with, I'm with her. Well, the most contemporary we got to was probably the Impressionists, All you right, know. Okay, well, and so, um, yeah. But, but she was a lot kind to be said of for spending a long part of your life looking at Rembrandt and Velasquez, you know. Oh, I don't even think. <laughs> like we spent a lot of time looking at old Celtic crosses and stuff. Like she was, she was, and but she was brilliant in other ways because yeah. she used to have she had this really small yellow car, and there was very few of us doing art for the Leaving Search. And one day there wasn't very many of us, so she said, "Come on, we'll get in the car and we'll go." There's a church near, I think it's near Loch Ray, with um, with a Harry Clark, Clark stained window in it oh, yeah. and she went come on we'll all get into the car so like and this this back in the day now and I'd say there were too many of us in the car and she just bringing you know like she'd never be able to bring us and she brought us to this church and then we took another by road and went off and found um an old Celtic cross to look at so she used to do that's, stuff like that. That's a day well spent. Yeah. But I mean, then I is. do remember when we had a substitute teacher who was about 30 years younger than her and she brought in viewfinders and I nearly freaked out because I was like, whoa, what is this? You know, yeah. just by the uh, the idea of looking at something really differently because we were always just looking at the thing that was right in front of us and she got us to see it in a really different way. And like really, as art goes, that's not mind-blowing. But for me, it was kind of like, there's something else. Yeah, you know? I remember an art teacher coming into our school. He had a camera which was progress, and uh, he showed us photographs that he had taken at a David Bowie concert. Oh. So that kind of, that was, oh, hey, oh what's going cool. on? How did he get in here? <laughs> <laughs> he slipped under the wire somehow. How did that happen? Amazing. But anyway, um, funny, I was in touch with him recently, and I got a copy of one of them. Hmm. Mm. Uh, nice man, Jerry Donnelly's his name. Anyway, um... What you were, were asking about? me about whether... Yes, they, thank you. Yes, sorry. <laughs> That's all. You should come here more often, actually. Um, no, you were asking me about whether the work I make now has any relationship. Well, look, let me. Yeah. So, here's what it says about you, right? This is this is your own blurb. Oh blurb, God, right? Or some, some, well, somebody has really somebody has written this about you, right? Yeah. Her work encompasses a diverse range of media, including live performance, public interventions, video, sound, sculpture, writing, and collaboration. Now, I can't imagine any of that came up at school. No, none of it. Right. Um, Maybe the writing. I was well, okay. I was good at writing okay. essays and making a point. So but I think the things that came out, I suppose the things from school, and I suppose from that period in my life when I think about, like, how did I end up here? A lot of it has to do with the fact that, actually, that I'm a triplet, I think, as well. Because mm. I, di I, w I didn't think about me only. I was often thinking about the we um, and that experience of doing things with other people. Like, other people were always involved, whether I liked it or not. So I think that somehow that part of my life has kind of filtered into thinking about how do you create these collective experiences. When I was in school, I did I did debating, and um, I was quite good at that. And kind of um, that really also helped me to um, to think about kind of structuring um, an argument and also kind of painting a kind of a picture through words which has helped in in that kind of aspect. Yeah, but see, I can see when you talk about it in those terms the way in which all the skills that you were developing would lead to this. Mm. But I think what happens to a lot of kids at school is that no matter what skills they have mm. 
there has to be something that happens where they realise this is where I can channel those skills. And it's not very often in school. Well, schools don't necessarily find the place where you can do that. No, no, not often. And I think actually, you know, I think actually young people even today more so than when I was in school maybe. But there, there, there is also an awful lot of pressure to be productive and to get a good job. And mm. I think parents are really worried about their children's survival. And when I'm, actually really what you need to be doing is trying to get them to find the thing that they're really passionate about. Because if they're really passionate about it, they will succeed. And so for me, like, I didn't have a straight path into art. Like, I did it for my leaving search. I was very good at it. But my parents were not keen on me becoming an artist. Like, the artists in my family were not the wealthy people. Um, and they didn't think that it would be sustainable for me so mm. I went and I did an arts degree I studied like again I, there was also slight disappointment but you know I went and studied um, Italian and English literature um, and spent four years doing that and then then came back did an arts administration course ended up working in theatre for a while and then eventually just went I really need to do something where I'm funneling my own creative energy because it was mm. kind of there wasn't an outlet for it in that in all of those things. There's quite a lot in that that's to say nowadays that we need to unpack. The big life, I know. We need sorry. to need to, <laughs> need to unpack. But before we do that, let's listen to Prince. Yeah. What What was your reaction? I mean, look, when Prince died, everybody started to talk about how much Prince affected them. If you're a particular age, in particular, mm. you know, and, and this guy appears. I don't yeah. know. What did you make of Prince when you saw him first? Well, it's funny, like, because I suppose the reason I love Prince and, like, I st we still listen to him to a lot, you know, because it's such brilliant music. When you say we, are we talking about the triplets or your husband? No, or your my, myself and my husband. Yeah. Um, and, um, but the thing about Prince was, I think Prince kind of was, when, when I first started to kind of go, oh, interesting. Like, I was toted classic teenage girl we watched top the pops religiously and i was into boy bands and you know that kind of very um very naive kind of infatuation whereas prince was kind of raw it was not like just infatuation girl thing it was a bit like ooh, there's something slightly different to this you know did, and you, prince, did you know what it was <laughs> i'm not entirely sure i think i probably had an idea at that point but um yeah but it was very different and he was kind of cool he had like like women as his, uh, you know, the, in, the band, yeah. in the band with him. Mm. And he was unashamedly kind of ambiguous also, mm. you know. He wore these crazy outfits, he had makeup on, and not in a way that was, I suppose, slightly different to the way that, like, other people would have done it before him, like David Bowie or, mm. you know, it was, but it was raw and it was kind of quite sensual. And he was and, really messing with your head though, wasn't he? Totally, but he was brilliant. And he was so he was so different to the other stuff that I was listening to. And would you say, in retrospect, as he did have such a big impact on you, and a lot of people would say this about Bowie as well, in terms of you becoming an artist as well, there was an example for you. You know, there was someone doing stuff. Yeah. Doing all sorts of stuff. All sorts of stuff. Like sure, when he when he changed his name to Symbol, that's like a performance in itself. You mm. know. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, and he, he could, was kind of unique. And he could write a good song.
Sorry, I was so engrossed in that. It was fading out. Uh, Prince and Kiss, great, great song. Michelle Brown choosing the music tonight. Um, Michelle, just talking about how you get to the point of being a professional artist and the kind of art that you work, the area that you work in. Now, when you, you did an arts degree where? In Galway. In Galway. Having done English, is that right? Or was that... No, I did English and Italian in what used to be UCG in NUIG. Right. And then I went to New York for a year and came back and went to UCD and did the arts administration course, the postgrad in arts How significant was New York, even if it was for a year? Oh, uh, like, New York was great crack. Like, no, I'm not talking about crack now. I'm talking about your artistic life career. Oh, uh, but I think... And, 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 and we all know it's great crack. No, <laughs> I think what was... I think what was good about going there was... I lived there for nearly a year and... It was really good fun. But I realised the people, I, you know, I was working in bars and restaurants and the people around me were very creative. Yeah. And clearly people were there, you know, people were going with this idea that they would, you know, be discovered or they would find their dream. Or, um, But it became really apparent, like, that people were there for a really long time and nothing had happened for them. Yeah. And so I kind of realised very quickly, if I stay here, I'm probably going to end up being here for 10 years but not making anything of myself. Well, I mean, did you did you see any living, breathing examples and think there there is a living, breathing artist or someone that I could, I, could, I could emulate in some way? No, but what was great was to be able to go to all of the major museums yeah. and see all of that work. When you were in New York and you're seeing all this great work in the galleries and all of that... Um, and they are mind-blowing. Those, oh, those, I mean, the totally. Metropolitan Museum, these places are mind-blowing, what they have there. Mm. What, what, did you, what were you drawn to? What did you like most, do you think? Well, I was... Like, I would go... I went to MoMA, and they had a really interesting show on where they were reimagining the collection. And they were kind of looking at it from... Kind of thinking about... There was like objects, and then another one was called matter or something. I can't, I can't totally remember, but I remember just going through it and um, understanding the work in a really different way. And the pairings of the work together was so unusual because you're used to seeing. I was used to seeing the shows and seeing the works in a book, so it's kind of like you know a chronological sense of how you tell art history. But when I went to the show, and I remember seeing kind of let's say you know video works beside kind of, let's say, some the Impressionists or somebody like that. And you'd just be like, whoa, this is a really different way of thinking about how you tell that story. And that was very powerful. Um, so those, like my memories of that were just, they're, they're kind of like light bulb moments of kind of like, oh, hang on, the story could be told, is can be told differently. And it's not necessarily, art's not necessarily this line that, mm. we, that we're told. So... Those kinds of things were quite powerful for me. Um, when you came back from New York, though, and you did, uh, have I got this right, arts admin at that point? Yeah. Now, you're going to still, I mean, even the word administration is a, is a big turnoff, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not, it's, you know, it's not the New York of Marina Abramovich and all that, although she would have a fair few administrators, I'm sure, looking after her career. But at the same time, you know, it's, 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 why did you do that? I wanted to, I wanted to make things happen. Like, I, I, I did, I, when I was in college, I used to kind of, I was involved in different societies and I would make things happen. I kind of saw the power of being able to kind of, again, it brings us back to where the work ended up, but the power of kind of like creating some kind of event that people would be part of and how people really enjoyed that and that it was a really strong experience for them. And um, 
yeah, I was interested in that and I was thinking, oh, maybe this is the way that I can do it. I think I thought that's what I, I, that's how I could channel my interest in the arts. Mm. Um, and so I went into this um, and it was good. It was frustrating, but it was good. You know, like weirdly, I was good at accounts, but it wasn't my passion. You know, uh, like that's the thing. Well, it must have been more than frustrating. I mean, you're doing accounts and you want to be a Oh, no, but at the same time, alongside that, you were like, you know, um, we had Luke Gibbons as one of our lecturers who oh, used right, to okay. talk to us about um, cultural theory. And then we had another cu culture policy lecture that was really interesting. And when you're dealing with people like that, who are kind of like really kind of drawing out ideas about like how culture has changed and the power of culture in society, that like that fed me in a, in, in a really strong way. And so and I'm sure it's useful to you now. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. There's no doubt that the reason that I also curate as well as making yeah. work is because of that um, certainly not, experience. Uh, certainly not time wasted. No. Here's one of those examples. The next person on your list is Bjork. Yeah. And I'd say for someone with your sensibilities and the, the ideas that you were probably forming in your mind as to what you could possibly do, that here was a real example. She, like, I remember, like, I got this, this was one of those albums that I went out, like, I stomped down to, what was it called? Um, Golden Discs. Yeah. And, like, bought the tape. I think I'd still have the tape in my parents' eyes. And I remember going down to buy it because I, when I heard this music, I was just like, hang on, this is like, this is really me. She just had this kind of frenetic kind of energy. And I, as a 19, 20-year-old, was very, had a lot of energy and a lot of enthusiasm, um, which I probably still have, but to a lesser extent. And... Um, I loved the fact that she was completely herself. And I loved, like, later on when she showed up on the Oscars red carpet in the swan dress, I just thought, she is the crack. You know, like, she just was being herself and really finding, and, like, that she came out of working with the Sugar Cubes to really try and express that mm. thing of herself. And she has continued to do that, and she's very unique in that. But this music from the first album is just really connects me to kind of, like, how I felt at that age and it being kind of, like, this bubbly excitement of the possibilities of life, basically. Bjork, violently happy. The choice of Michelle Brown, the artist and curator who's with me in studio tonight, picking the music. Now, Michelle, I want to move on to a situation now where, you know, you were good at art at school, you did the leaving, you did various, you know, follow the educational route, and, and that even included arts administration and all the rest of it. Was there, was there any particular artist or event or moment where it kind of crystallised for you, as in, this is the kind of thing... I want to do? Well, I suppose the 
the work that I saw when I was in college in Galway by Dorothy Crossworth that she made in the handball alley, um, which was, it's two handball alleys beside each other. Um, and they're kind of like, you know, the old concrete style, very kind of stark. And we were on kind of risers that had been built so that you were looking down into them. And there were two large gale projections projecting onto the ground of them. And this kind of swirling, um, images of the sea and the crashing waves and I think that stuff was probably um, shot out in Connemara and on the Iron Islands um, and she was working with these two opera singers and they were singing different areas about kind of like being separated and not being able to get to each other kind of and I just remember being completely kind of swept up in the um, occasion of it. Yeah. Like it was such a grand piece of work and it was an incredible thing to witness. Like you couldn't but get caught up in it, you know. And to be outside, to be using a space that I haven't grown up in Galway, didn't even know was there, but to use it in such a poetic way that kind of got you to reimagine the place mm. again. Um, and for somebody else it would be completely different. I mean, ham handball alleys to me... Uh, make me think of smoking, which is where people smoked in the handball alleys, and fights. Lot, that's where the fights were in the handball alley. Really? Yeah, especially in the box alley, which was the more enclosed one. Wow, you know? okay. Yeah, no, so, it definitely wasn't in any fights. But it was, and it was an all-boys school, so there was, you know, it had no romantic connotations or nothing like that, you know. So yeah. it was, it was, but Dorothy knows this kind of stuff. Yeah. That's what's great about it. But let me put this to you then, in terms of that, that can, Dorothy's been on this show actually doing what you do, picking, picking the music, and I really, really, I, I love Dorothy. But the thing is this, there may be people who've never been to that kind of work, right? And they're thinking, yeah, but like, you know, what is it? You can't hang it on the wall. What is it? But you need, the point is, a bit like a lot of jazz, you have to be there. You have to, yeah. be, you have to be in the middle of it for it to make sense. And I suppose that's the thing. It's kind of um, experiences are kind of uh, what I'm after. Mm. And it's kind of interesting because there's all of this um, research and writing that's going on at the moment about how people are being drawn more and more towards experiences because, you know, like people, even with music, people are more prepared to buy a ticket to a gig than they are to buy the album. So there's a push to kind of move towards experiences, um, even within music. And so, um, and they were talking about it recently, there was an article I was reading, even thinking about like all these writers that are coming to Dublin now and kind of like, so this kind of thing of going to listen to someone tell a story, um, it's about the experience and the collective experience. So it's kind of really becoming... Uh, now something that people are seeking out but that's what I'm and have been kind of looking for. I but think what, what, what drew you to that type of work though? I mean you just when, we, when that record was playing you were telling me you read a thing in, in New York which again is one of those one of those situations when you when you when you describe it to someone you know here in the national playing for six hours or hearing a bunch of people you know or Marina Abramovich you know mm. you know what sorts of, sort of work she does. Yeah. It sounds like, well, what's the point in that? But then when you're there, yeah. it's kind of amazing. Exactly. And I think, um, I think, I think that's the, it. So I've also made an awful lot of performance work and um, performance works in galleries is very difficult to explain and it's very difficult for people to get their head around and it can be totally cringy. But actually, um, part of it is that experience of being there, not totally being sure what's going to happen. And... Um, having to sit with it because um, lots of things are really sanitised and actually having to sit with a bit of discomfort and sit with a bit of not knowing, it, um, it's, it can be quite powerful to have to kind of negotiate, okay, how 
you know, what am I going to do here? So Marina Vamovich is a perfect example. Like a lot of her earlier works were really about people witnessing something and they and and also kind of trying to understand their inner feelings about what their role within that witnessing is. Um, so when she did Rhythm O, for example, where she had all the things on the table and the, the audience could come in and do whatever they wanted, part of that is also kind of negotiating questions around how we relate to each other. And like, so it's a microcosm of society. And obviously that, oh, you know, that kind of famously went kind of bad um, and they had to kind of call a halt to it. Well, she because, was attacked, wasn't she? Well, someone pointed a loaded yeah. gun at her mm. and I think that's when they said. But it's interesting then to think about, well, what happened? What are the set of circumstances that allowed that to happen? What made it permissible to get to that level? And so I think that's kind of the power of having experiences with other people because we have to think about what, how are we all in this together? She did a show in um, Manchester called Marina Bramfitch Presents, which was an exhibition of, um, I think there were 12 performance artists that she had worked with over the years. Some of them had been her students. Amanda Coogan was part of that show. Um, and you went into the exhibition and they were perform- They performed over four hours. And um, But at the beginning, the audience had to go into a room for about an hour, I think, and do a kind of a training. So it was kind of like preparing the audience mm. for how they would enter the space. And there was, a, you know, it was quite a bit of artifice to it in the sense, I think we had to put on white coats. She had white coat on. But actually what she was doing was different exercises that were about um, kind of bringing people down to a different level of attention. Mm. And so one of the exercises that you had to do was sit across from someone and stare at them. And so this is something that we would do a lot with the students if we're doing um, performance workshops with them, because we don't do that. We don't stare at people unless we're in love with them very often. Oh, you're, or inter- unless you're interviewing them for two yeah, hours Yeah, but even then, we're not, we're not staring at each <laughs> yeah, other exactly. in an intense way. And this is like, you're close to each other, you're nearly, your knees are nearly touching mm. and you're looking at this yeah. person. You're in their orbit you're, you, and you can't hide from it. And what happens in that moment is you ha- are really vulnerable. And I think a lot of those experiences for people, they, they maybe didn't realise that's what was going to happen, but you become really vulnerable. And then she, like a lot of people that I've spoken to that have been to it, talk about like how it nearly felt like she kind of like took you in and kind of like held you in that space. Mm. That didn't happen for everybody, but like it did mean that a lot of people got quite emotional in it because often people, people kind of are often hiding themselves. They're kind of presenting a front we get so much of that now um but to sit there and to really be seen is a very particular experience that um, we just don't have very often yeah next choice oh the next choice is the breeders no aloha no bye no aloha Breeders and no aloha. The artist Michelle Brown, uh, the artist and curator Michelle Brown is with me in studio tonight. She's picking all the music. We'll be right back with a lot more after this break. 
and this is Mr. Train on RTE Lyric FM, the Sunday night show where we get someone in to pick the tracks. Michelle Brown, the artist and curator, is with me in studio tonight. Michelle, just before that break, we were talking about performance pieces and how powerful they can be and all the rest of it. And you mentioned Marina Abramovich. And I'm thinking of Amanda Coogan, who you know and studied with. And I'm, and also, she was on this programme too, as was Jesse Jones. And it came up a couple of times um, in the context that <laughs> the women in particular who do this kind of work, and I think it may have been Jesse who said it, in the old days they'd have been burned as witches for doing this kind of performance mm. work, you know, because it is so provocative and challenging. And Do you think that, uh, that artists, and performance artists in particular, do somehow manage to harness some kind of inner strength that the rest of us don't necessarily have and, and then can pass it on? Well, well is that I a, would have like I said to something suggest, really stupid? No, I would like to suggest that it's not that it's something that performance artists have that other people don't have. Yeah. I think it's just something that they are they're actively using within themselves. Yeah, yeah. So um, often when like performance is about it's about kind of being present in the moment in a lot of cases like if you're making a performance work where you are the performer and there are people watching you um as opposed to people taking or like a group of people taking part in an action that that can be slightly different but you have to be very present you have to and you have to have complete focus and complete intention in what you're doing like if i am sitting here and I've decided to do something for an hour and you're watching me. If I don't believe in what I'm doing, you are definitely not going to believe it. So often the power is in a real attention to what's going on and, and, and really just being in the moment, actually, which really does relate to kind of mindfulness and all that kind yeah. of stuff. You know, there, there's definitely, there are correlations in terms of... Um, taking time to to focus um and i think that that's actually something that's really powerful i do think that that that, that then gives a kind of a heightened energy and the more that you use that the more that it is it, it becomes part of who you are and you become quite you can become quite settled and mm. um, because of that it depends on who you are and it's not the same for everybody for me like bringing it into art practice and, and why probably it, it became so um, strong in the 60s and 70s because we had moved so much towards objects and so much towards kind of also the commodification of art um, over that period. And I think that there was a kind of an interest in getting back to, okay, what are we really about? So let's say someone like Alan Capro, who was working in America and um, really coined that that kind of term the happenings and he was the first first person who kind of wrote about Jackson Pollock um, and the performative quality of what he was doing because it was so in the body how he was moving the paint around the place and that that then kind of translated into him like writing quite a lot about what are these actions that we do so he is a really good kind of um, there's a really nice quote from a book that he that he wrote that that kind of looks at kind of like really simple actions so he talks about like you know brushing your teeth for just a little bit too long and he also talks about like you know when you shake a hand it's kind of a ritual that we have but if you do it for just slightly too long mm. it kind of takes on and obviously that became very um topical with um trump kind of like you know very pointedly you know 
holding people's hands and shaking them for that just that little bit too long because it changes the nature of this ritual that we understand yeah. you know and so I think um, performance is kind of bound up in that kind of stuff and I, and a lot of the a lot of the early work that was kind of looking at our relationship to our bodies obviously that was related to kind of the um, second wave feminism and kind of really trying to understand who who am I as a woman and my place and my relationship to my body that people are trying to control you know and I think a lot of like the you know artists um, in Ireland were also doing that through performance and through media work so let's say someone like Pauline Cummins who I've also worked with um, you know really kind of using new media and performance to kind of interrogate those questions you know so all it, it's not just one thing the the religious thing kind of is part of it but there are so many other factors that were happening societally um and in the art world that were kind of feeding into kind of why this work came about and i think now we're seeing a move towards it again um over the let's say the last 10 years or so you know you can see that now in the biennials there's like programs for performance and even you know the um the pavilion that won the um, Golden Lion in Venice this year, I think it was Latvia, it was this performance piece of an opera that you can go and be part of. Um, that is about experience. Mm. It's about being in a place in that time and, and kind of feeling that, you know? And, and how much of it, this just off the top of my head, now we could be going nowhere with this, but how much of that could be to do with the fact that so much performance art has made its way into popular culture with performers like Bjork and Lady Gaga and you name it, you know, they, they, they're taking stuff from that. And, and people are more familiar with that sort of, you know, expression nowadays, you know? I mean, this, it's the same, the same thing happened with music. What was avant-garde music is not avant-garde anymore because it went into the pop culture and it's come back out the other side again. Yeah, yeah. Like, I'm sure, I think Lady Gaga probably did a lot for, um, mm. you know, but even... Was it Jay Z that had Marina Rapic yeah. in it? Like that? Although that didn't end. That well. wasn't great. Yeah, it wasn't a great moment, unfortunately. But, um, you know, but I see, you know, and I think that's the thing about Marina Bravich, let's say. She has popularized performance in a way that no other person has and has made it more center stage. But without making it easy. No, without without well, making no, it you too might, easy. You might have another without view. Seriously, you, know, you, you might have another view on this. I might yeah. be talking about the. the I mean, <laughs> I just. You know, you might have a completely different view about it. Maybe you think she's sold out or something, I don't know. I don't think she's sold out, but I do think that the, you know, I don't love all of the work, but then having said no, that, I you? haven't been to all the yeah. work. So I am really aware that, like, on the surface, it might look not great, yeah. but like that. So yeah. when she did the piece where she, you know, the artist is present, I think it was called, yeah. when she did that work, I was kind of like, ah. but... The reports from people who went into and took part in it, they were very moved by it. And so that is also the difficulty, as we were saying, you know, you don't know unless you've really been there, you know? Yeah. Now, where are we musically? We got women off in one there. Ella Fitzgerald. And yeah. What, what song do you want? Well, I had put Manhattan down, you know, for obvious reasons. Yeah. She kind of like um, tips off lots of the um, lovely places in the in the city. But I suppose I love this kind of music. I'm big into crooners and I think you can kind of sing along to and I think she's kind of incredible. She's great Sunday morning music, really. Tell me what street compares to Mott Street is one of the best lines in a song oh. anyway. <laughs> Sun 
summer journeys to Niagara and to other places aggravate The dreams of a boy and girl will turn Manhattan into an Isle of Joy. Ella Fitzgerald, Manhattan, the choice of Michelle Brown, who's with me in studio. Michelle, we're talking about performance art mm. and I suppose what we've been talking about so far has very much been an, the individual relating to an audience of whoever turns up to sit and watch, mm. experience the whole thing. But you do a lot of work um, which involves what's called public interventions. Now, what, is, what does that mean? Well, I suppose an intervention is kind of something that inserts itself into a situation. So um, you think, like, we're here now and someone kind of storms in the door and kind of, like creates a completely different situation that has nothing got to do with this radio show. Right. That's kind of like an intervention of, of just forms. Um, and, and how can that possibly serve a useful purpose, if you know what I mean? Well, I think... Or does it even have to have a useful purpose? Maybe that's the Yeah. I think the thing about it is, is that often, I think often the works that I'm making are trying to get people to think slightly differently about... Yeah about the places that they live their lives in, about kind of how they live their lives and what we've kind of accepted as normal. Well, tell me about Bring Your Own Chair, which so, is kind of a key project for you. Yeah, so I've been working on this project now for over a year and um, it was originally kind of presented as a proposal for the Three Sisters bid um, for the um, Capital Culture for 2020. And um, it was kind of thinking about how do, originally kind of thinking about how do you bring this kind of cultural offer to the kind of wider population of this area if it were to come to pass. And then obviously it didn't, but we got um, funding from the Arts Council to, um, really think about how do um, how how would we work in kind of rural towns and think about like what it means to live in those places today, and so we chose twelve small towns of under two thousand people across Waterford, Wexford, and Kilkenny, um, and in each town we've been kind of we've. Um, been visiting, kind of gathering stories, doing workshops, and through these different processes, finding out what are the kind of stories that people tell about these places, what are the salient issues that are coming up for people, and how do they really express their sense of place. And what's been interesting about this project is, obviously, I think the, I think the original bid for the Three Sisters went in maybe in 2015, I think. Um, so we're four years down the line. We're now at technically full employment. Um, we're supposedly out of the recession. It's a slightly different, it, it's a very different kind of um, frame. But at the same time, is it a different frame for these rural communities? They're having lots of different issues that are go going on. And what we've been trying to do is unpack some of that and um, kind of discover it. Um, I so, can see now where all the skills that you had or the things that you were good at at school yeah. can all come together in this. Yeah. And like a lot of the work is going around the country and meeting people, having conversations, going for a cup of tea in their house and hearing their story and kind of gathering that kind of knowledge and understanding of how people feel about their place. And people are really connected to the towns that they live in. Um, so, you know, we had a really... like. Ballyhack in County Wexford is one of the towns that we worked in. And from the very beginning, they, you know, they're such a beautiful community. It's one of the smallest place that we work in. I think there's less than 300 people live there. And they have seen such a huge about 
turn in kind of their identity of their village that um, that really came across in the kind of conversations we have. When we went to do um, like events that we were calling town visits, we kind of ended up feeling, myself and the producers who are um, Workhouse Union based in Callan, we felt kind of nearly like we were interlopers in this experience that was really, mm. th that they were having where they were telling stories about old stories about the village and how it used to be a thriving fishing community and that that had really um, been lost when the laws were changed around salmon fishing on the estuary. Now, when you make a project like that, mm. um, tell me, in your view, what is more effective in that kind of a project or what can be achieved by that kind of a project that can't be achieved by a primetime report from that village? You know what I mean? A straightforward journalistic report or a docu documentary, old-fashioned style documentary. Or indeed, somebody local writing a novel about it or mm. something like that. Well, I think that they offer different things. Again, we go back to experience. So the final thing that we, the final event that we presented in Ballyhack was what we were, what the um, PR woman, Nance McSweeney, um, coined the Wexican wave. So we did, we, I really wanted to use, there's a ferry that runs from, Valley Hack to Passage East. It's a really important piece of infrastructure for that area for people who are working in Waterford but live in Wexford and vice versa um, and then also bringing tourists through the area. Really important piece of infrastructure. Without it I think those places would would, would have died completely, you know, because they really are like at the bottom of a road without it. And so I wanted to do something with the ferry that would somehow kind of celebrate their relationship to the estuary. And they talk so beautifully about how they used to live by the tides, how they were so connected to them and how they'd have to wait for the tide to be going, to be going in, to go up to dances and Cheek Point and then wait for it to come back out to, to go home. And all of those, those kind of stories came up. So we decided that we'd do this event where people became the tide going in and out. So we went out at high tide on the ferry, got the ferry to turn around and go up the estuary slightly, which it never does, it just goes back and forth. And um, we became the wave. So we brought the tide in at high tide and then as the tide turned, we brought the tide back out again. It was total madness. A hundred people came along to it. But it was a really enjoyable experience that was really about them. And yeah. they came, they got totally involved in it. Like again, a slightly mad thing for them to do, but they embraced it because they realised that it really was a celebration of their area. And it was a fun thing that all the family could take part in, but it was very much connected to their history and to the place. And also, you know, an experience like that, you know, remains in the memory. Yeah, absolutely. The way a news report doesn't. Yeah, so we had all these punch these funny ponchos that I bought that were in different colours of blue so that they would become literally like this wave of water. Um, and at the end, they were like, can I keep this? And I was like, yeah, no problem. And so loads of people went. And I love the idea that like when it rains and people go for walks, they're going to be wearing their ponchos. And then someone will spot them in the poncho and be like, hi, I was at that as well. Yeah. And it becomes part of the becomes part of the story of the place. To, they'll be saying, Do you remember that mad woman came from Dublin? Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. That's exactly it. I am the mad woman who came from Dublin in many places now. Your next choice is the prayer boat. Yeah. And you know something? I used to play this on the radio a long time ago. Which track do you want? Um, It Hurts to Lose You. Okay, It Hurts to Lose You. From the prayer boat, from an album called Polychanel. Is that right? Yeah, Polychanel, I think Polly it is. Polychanel. Well, I was saying it wrong back then. I'm still saying it wrong. That was an Pol amazing album. Polychanel. And uh, this is called It Hurts it hurts to lose you. Prayer boat. Mm. 
Michelle, I've really got to thank you for picking that because I haven't heard that song in so long and I used to play that on the radio and I forgot... I, I, kind of, I, I don't know why I'd forgotten about it, but just here, it does bring... When you hear a song, it really does bring you back somewhere, doesn't it? Well, that's kind of maybe part of the joy of having to make this list. So there isn't anybody who ever has to do this. It's not the easiest thing to do, but I knew I wanted to play a song off that album because it's one of those ones that I come back to regularly mm. because it's also like it's so incredibly sad and if you need to have a cry which I regularly do I'm just like oh that's a surefire just throw it on it'll like wash over you you know um it's a beautiful album he's such an incredible voice Polichinelle um did I say it right that time yeah the prayer boat um Emma Tinley what a great singer mm. extraordinary and it's, it's I can't believe I actually had kind of forgotten that song because I used to love it I, play, I used to play it to death on the radio. Now, um, where, are, where are we? Yes, another project of yours I want to ask you about. I'm not going to walk you through each project one by one, but it's a good way of explaining how you work. Tell me about, as you say here, Manaw. We would say Mara, Manon and Heron. Tell me about that particular project. So, um, yeah, Manon and Heron was a work that I made in 2016, and I was invited by um, a curator called Catherine Marshall, who was putting together an exhibition that was... Um, it was a celebration of the life of Kathleen Lynn. So it was a show that was happening up in Mayo because um, she was from there originally. And what I was interested about her was, so, so she was a staunch feminist. She started out as a suffragette before she became um, a Republican and involved in the Republican movement. Um, and she was subsequently very involved and um, we used to run guns and like, you know, there's great stories. And she had her, um, her own house and um, used to kind of like mind people who were on the run and she had a very political household and um, she was also one of the first women elected to public office so um, she didn't take her seat uh, like many of the people who were in Sinn Féin um, but then got elected to the city council and did take her seat in the city council and worked for quite a number of years in the city council and so I was interested in her as a in her as a political figure. And I suppose that was the year that we were, there was a lot of talk about bringing in gender quotas um, for the um, election that was happening that year. So during the time I was making this work, there was a general election. And um, so I was kind of interested in thinking about that and thinking about like how women get involved in politics. So obviously there's been lots of research done around that and Ivana Bacic has done great research in thinking about what are the barriers to women getting involved in politics. And I was interested in just thinking about like wh how do we... How do we understand those, uh, how, how and why people get involved? So it was very clear ask. I am... I, got in touch with as many women who were involved in po politics as, pos as possible and I was just asking them three questions like one was like what was the politicizing moment so what was the moment that you knew that you felt like I have to get involved and the other one was who were the people who supported you along the way you know we ended up then with a clause in the constitution that is about women's place within the home mm. and so I suppose that's the other piece of this work so the third question then was thinking about what are the kind of political activities that happen within the home and the home as a site of political activity that is maybe slightly different um, and so I was interested in thinking about that about how the women who are currently working within politics or have been working in politics how they thought about their home or how that how that was infiltrated with politics but so far what this is is you thinking about something and you interviewing people yeah right so now that's, but that's that's um, so far 
it's not a piece of art, is it? No. So again, then it becomes about being, creating an experience for that. Mm. So the work then became a like a kitchen table with the carving of this article on the surface of it. So the first article of 41.2. So you sit at the table and the table is slightly bigger than a kitchen table. So it's kind of supposed to be somewhere between a boardroom table and a kitchen table. It's kind of a f funny size. It's slightly too big. And, and the relevant clauses in the Constitution are carved into the table. Into the table. So right, you're looking right. at this as you're listening to these women talking about their, talking about their lives, talking about the people who inspire them, you know, often talking about, you know, women in their lives and their mothers and people who really inspired them to move into politics. Mm. Um, and it's like, it's kind of a tapestry of all the voices. So again, and you use the word there, and it's, it's, it's very clear to me now, it's about the experience and your job is to create an experience. Yeah, that's yeah. what I'm really interested in. Yeah. I'm kind of, you know, I guess I'm very interested in 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 experience and feelings. I'm going to talk a lot about feelings, and my students are driven nuts by kind of going, "How is it supposed to make me feel?" Mm. Um, but I think that that's really important because somewhere in there, it's not totally. But you're. But I want to kind of move people in a way that sometimes makes them feel uncomfortable, but then also sometimes just kind of well, shifts. I can, them when slightly. you describe that, like I can see how that would be an experience, a more effective experience than watching the documentary on the same subject. Yeah. Do you know, or reading a newspaper article about it. Useful yeah. as those things can be mm. as well. Your next musical choice, Lauren Hill. Lauren Hill, yeah. So this is from the album The Miseducation of Lauren Hill, and we could play the whole thing. I think this this album's like pretty um, pretty special when it came out. It, I listened to it an awful lot, and I loved the fact that she. Um, I love the fact that, you know, she had been with the Fugees and this album feels like a real um, expression of herself and her experience. Um, and so this, the one that I chose was To Zion, which is about her becoming, choosing to become a mother. One day, I'm going to understand. And that's Lauren Hill, the choice of Michelle Brown is with me in studio tonight. And uh, that song, uh, To Zion. And you were saying that's a song about um, um, childbirth, having a baby. Yeah, well, it's about like people kind of suggesting to her that maybe she shouldn't have to have a baby because this wouldn't be good for her career, mm. you know? Um, and it ties up with this project of yours, the, the Mothership Project. Yeah, so I've been involved in the Mothership Project since... Um, 2013 and it's a network of um, artists who are parents and um, we recently published um, a booklet called Satellite Findings which was based on some research that we did about kind of what, what it's like to be a parenting artist in Ireland. Um, so we were we did a survey that was kind of looking at like you know how much work do people uh, you know how much time do people have for their practice you know do they can they access childcare um, how does it impact them fin financially but then also in terms of how you make the work and how you how you negotiate the, those two li lines. Um, a parenting artist. Yeah, if you're an artist in the family and unless you're you've you've hit a kind of commercial success. 
you're often the person that has to kind of take up the slack for the childcare if the other person has a nine to five yeah. job that they yeah. have to be at. Yeah. Your time is flexible. And so, you know, there are it equally affects men as well as women if they are the main child, the main um, caregiver in the family. Um, and one, like what was really interesting is one person said, um, being an artist is a full-time unpaid job and so is being a mother. And it's very demand demanding to dedicate yourself to both. Mm -hmm. And I suppose that's the challenge constantly. It's like, you know, being an artist, it's not, it's not often not financially viable. Um, and then what happens is if you have children, it can become even more difficult to do that because if the financial burden to make the work is on you, you might not have that disposable income to spend on making the work. And I suppose what we're interested in doing by creating this publication and about doing the survey, and we also hosted um, a pilot residency with the Cowhouse Studios down in um, Wexford, really thinking about how can we do this differently so that we can allow lots of different kinds of people to be part of this system because mm. currently the system is really designed for you know independent kind of free agents who are able to drop everything in a hat and leave the country to go do something or yeah. drop everything they're doing to make a piece of work or how do we you know and so like even some of the findings and the recommendations are about like how can you think about you know even the opportunity that you're giving can you kind of childproof it in a way so that you're giving someone enough time to plan childcare if childcare isn't, isn't part of it or give people enough lead in time so that the deadline isn't next week so that you can they can they have enough time to apply for it. I mean I don't want to bring it all down to mm. money but the obvious thing as well is the kind of work that you do you can, people can't buy it and hang it on the wall. No. Now, I know the Arts Council have, has the table Manana no, Heron um, and they, they've collected that that's, that's, that's there so that's something but a lot of the type of work you do you can't just uh, sell, you know, 50 paintings in an evening. No, but there are plenty, there are quite a few opportunities out there yeah. for artists to be commissioned to do stuff. Yeah. And the kind of work I make is really, um, I suppose it's attractive to certain kinds of commissioners and certain kinds of funders because it's related to place. So. Yeah county councils you yeah. know the arts council have a particular kind of strand of work that is about participation and allowing people to be part of the process of making art and being involved in being part of the artwork and you also have as they say a real job <laughs> you, also, you also teach well i'm lucky that my real yeah. job is connected to it yeah, you know exactly. and um yeah they, they they can be difficult things to do together because they both require a lot of creative energy your title is professor of what I'm assistant professor of sculpture and expanded, expanded practice. practice. Yeah, mm -hmm. what's expanded practice? Expanded practice is all the stuff that isn't making an object. Right. So what we would teach, um, like we do a lot of different things with them. So they, you know, they get an introduction to woodwork, metalwork, casting, but they also get an introduction to video using sound making work in context, so like w making work for a, like a street, making performance. Like we try to really introduce them to as many different forms and as many different ways of working so that they might find the thing that really sings for them. Now, so many artists and so many writers, for instance, teach in universities and all the rest of it, and you would look at some of them and think they're really frustrated, they'd rather be at home writing poetry or whatever it is. But at the same time, you're thinking it must be, I would imagine, really inspirational to be around loads of like you know eager young people who are you know coming up with ideas and you're bouncing off them and you're teaching them and you're you know that must be great to be in that milieu 
it's Pardon me, totally isn't that word? brilliant. Like, because actually, you know, it's funny, like, I used to say this about when I did my master's, you know, like, oh, here's all these people who want to talk, talk about art all day. Like, this is great. I could spend all day talking about art and not, like, be trying to do it with someone yeah. who doesn't care. Um, for yeah. the most part now, like, that's I not know. always the I case. Know. But, like, the enthusiastic students are really heartwarming and they remind you, like, they kind of remind you, like, oh, yeah, you know, the in to, to hold on to but that. But does that give you a creative energy as well, do you think? It can do. It yeah. can do. Sometimes it doesn't because it's, you know, it it's hugely demanding and you're giving a lot and there's an awful lot of emotional labour involved in teaching that I suppose isn't something that necessarily um, gets talked about a huge amount yeah. but you're holding people um, particularly I don't want to sound all again too pretentious about like about people learning how to make art but um, it, it's really challenging you have to you have to put yourself out there. Actually, it's very hard to make a good piece of work if you're not really fully in it and if you're not fully prepared to put your whole self into it. Mm. And sometimes you have to be really vulnerable. Sometimes you have to be really vulnerable with, with the tutor that you're with, that you're talking to, to really explain why you're doing the thing that you're doing. Yeah, you and won't. that, to hold that is a great privilege but it can also be um it can also be really hard because yeah. you know you know that this person is struggling and you can see that you know this happens you're in this phase there's always a phase that's a bit hairy where you're like i'm not sure where this is going and then it can kind of click into place that's the beauty part where it's kind of like oh that's that's it you know and you get it and then you can kind of run with making the work but there's uh, there is a whole set there's a whole lot of time in the middle there where you're trying things out, you're testing different things, they're not working and you're like this is, you know, this is not working, this is a terrible idea and you have to try and help hold them and ask them the right questions so they can figure it out themselves like the worst thing you can do is tell them what to do um, so you're trying to hold them and really ask the question that's going to get them somewhere It's great to hear someone involved in education talking in those terms, you know, but you know, you've got to hold them that's a great thing to hear. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right, your next choice is Feist. Yeah. Leslie Brilliant. Feist. And uh, you're going to... What is it? Intuition. Here it comes. Intuition from Feist and uh, Michelle Brown's with me in studio picking all the records tonight. We've time for a couple more. Michelle, one of the things I want to ask you about as well, as well as being a, a practicing artist, um, y you're also, uh, and an educator, teacher, you're also a curator. Yeah. Now, how does that, what does that mean? I know what a curator in a museum is, for instance, but what is it that you do? I suppose um, what I like to do is think about how you can bring more voices into a situation. So often when I'm when I'm thinking about like curating a project, it's about kind of like how do I bring, how do I make this more than if I were to just do something for it, you know? Um, so I did a show years ago in Dublin Castle and I was invited um, by a woman there who's kind of involved in the collection. Her name is Jenny Papasutiriu and she um, invited me in 
with the proposal that I might do something. Um, but then I was like, no, this is going to be, I, can, I could already see the potential of there being way more voices. So it ended up being a show with seven artists in it that I curated. Um, well, is that in a sense a bit like what a producer does in another yeah, context? You, yeah, yeah. And, and like that's kind of interesting because I'm involved in this programme called Creative Producers International, which is... Um, 15 producers from all over the world who are kind of making projects in and for the city and as part of the reason why I'm currently doing this project called um, the Citizen Cycle um, that is going to coincide with the this cycling conference that's coming to Dublin at the end of the month called Vale City. Well let's let tell you what let's talk about Citizen Cycle mm. in a minute but I want, I'm anxious to get two more tracks in and, and in particular you, the last track that we play you're going to have to play it for reasons that will become obvious but um, let's, uh, let's play FKA Twig right? Is that the one? Yeah, that's We're the one. We're going to have to drop something, but we'll play this one. And uh, this is uh, this is called Two Weeks. I know it hurts. You know. I'd quench that thirst. Two weeks you There you go, that's the FKA twig there, and uh, and that's two weeks. It is mercifully the clean edit as well, so there, we anticipated you causing trouble here, Michelle, tonight. It's now, beautiful. It's gorgeous. And um, now we've time for one more track, but before we do that, um, tell me about the current project, because it's quite relevant, because it's coming up to a head quite soon on, what, Wednesday week or so? Yeah, so... Um the program, I've basically developed this program around um, a cycling conference that's coming to Dublin called Velo City. It's an international cycling conference that happens in a capital city every year. And so it's a pretty big deal that all of these people are coming, like 2,000 people are going to come from internationally and from around the country to think particularly about cycling infrastructure in the city. And the whole um, conference, the title of it is Cycling for the Ages. And it's thinking about, um, it's also thinking about accessibility, who gets to cycle. So the program is really looking at that. So I've invited three artists to work with different groups to think about um, cycling, but also kind of like, what's the future city that we want? So let's say Rona Byrne is an artist who is working with um, a group of children from a school out in Rohini. They're fifth class students and they're kind of creating a model city to think about what a city would look like in the future that might be accessible for children and then might also kind of be um, more accessible for cycling and for different modes of transport. Um, and so they're developing kind of a model that you'll be able to get into. And you kind of will see it at kind of eye level. And it's really trying to get to their perspective of how they see the city. And then an artist called James O'Hay is working with a group of older people. And they have they did a first performance of the work for Bialtana, which was kind of um, looking at kind of the place of um, older people in cycling. And so they've created this um, gang called the Bee Bandits. And it's kind of thinking about rather than anti-social behaviour, kind of pro-social behaviour in the city. It's, it's an artist is doing this as opposed to a bunch of civil servants with a, with a what, what do you call it, a clip? board asking questions about cycling you know well yeah and i think the the group particularly the group that are working with, with james nothing wrong with civil servants by the way well no we, we they have, have a, a place probably quite but it's a, very... no, we have lots of civil servants in the audience uh, as we have a lot of barbara streisand listeners earlier all the people that we've we've yeah anyway we leave it at that yeah but i think i guess what's i the difference i suppose is these things are very playful and uh, 
in a way that's kind of art is kind of an interesting place it kind of covers lots of different genres different kinds of work obviously what I do is kind of you know wouldn't be what people would expect from art but it's a space that allows things to happen that yeah. wouldn't normally that's, normally that's happen. the important thing isn't it yeah exactly so um so yeah so the each of the works is kind of looking at that kind of stuff Kleena Harmy is working with people who are regular cyclists and kind of thinking about how if you're a cyclist in the city and I've been cycling in Dublin since I moved here um nearly 20 years ago and you become a network of people who are all connected to each other and how can you play with that so they're kind of developing um a choreographed performance working with a dancer and choreographer called Myrna Bloomer and really thinking about how can you play with that kind of this is kind of an intimacy to knowing the people who are on the streets and to knowing the city in a particular kind of way because you're on the streets all the time um and then the last work is a series of audio guides that are going to introduce let's say the delegates but then also people from Dublin to the city in a different way. So um, the first person is Louise Bruton, who is a wheelchair user and an activist, and she's going to introduce Dublin from the perspective of someone who uses a wheelchair and is thinking about accessibility and how that sometimes rubs up against um, planning, development and kind of preservation also in a, in a historic city. Um, and then Frances Halsell, who is um, a lecturer in NCAD, actually in a theorist, but a mad cyclist and a competitor cyclist is going to think a little bit about kind of um, cycling also as a system and then how we negotiate this the the city being also related to the different ways that we cycle so he'll be also looking at like the, the velodrome out in Sundrive Park and how that's a totally different kind of community and a different way of thinking about cycling to someone who's on a Dublin bike and then the last person is Louise Williams and she's really involved in the Women on Wheels which is a research group looking at um, the barriers to women cycling because only 25% of the people who cycle are in Ireland are women or they're only only 25%, 25% are women right. and what's the sort of conclusion of this you know how does this come to a head well we're the works are all going to be presented on the 26th of june um in saint anne's park and as part of this public cycle that is going to be part of the conference so the delegates will all ride out um towards saint anne's park and the public are invited to take part part in it and then there'll be a number of events along with the artworks that i've um curated um in saint anne's park on that evening well all the best with that that takes a lot of thinking you have to th yeah, every possible aspect of cycling has to be considered here when you do one of these projects yeah but it's great when you have a moment where like one of the women who's involved in james's pro project said i haven't been on a bike for 40 years and she's gotten on one and she's been really enjoying being part of that project and that in itself and and they are also kind of finding a confidence and the children are finding a voice in how they think about the future of the city like oh i might have an opinion about this it doesn't have to be the way that it's presented by other people excellent now the last piece of music you're going to play and i did not despite my extensive research in advance of this interview <laughs> extensive i didn't know that uh, your husband is someone who i know and was a guest on this program some months ago sean mackerlane saxophonist among other things yeah um, that's him a, i'm a big fan of what he does and um you've chosen a piece of music by sean i, I have to ask you are you doing that just for domestic sort of peace and harmony yeah or yeah you, he's you, the kind of guy who said if you don't play one of my tunes or do you that's like, what he said do you yeah. actually listen to this stuff uh oh god i listen to it a lot like i suppose you know i chose a tune from this is how we fly because i guess this is how we fly 
well, I, they kind of formed around the same time that, that we had our child. And, and we mentioned his name, Sean McElaine. Sean McElaine, yes. And um, I suppose these guys have kind of in a weird way infiltrated our family because they come to Ireland like um, Nick Garris and Peter Brendolan live abroad. And um, so they come to Ireland. They often stay with us. They're around, you know, they could be around for a couple of weeks at a time if they're on tour and... Um, They've really been become kind of part of our family, and like we're, they've watched our daughter grow up, and we've kind of built very like strong somehow, relationships. It sounds like you somehow keep Queeven Arella out of the house or something. I know Queeven's around, but he's around all the time. Yeah, you know, okay. he's right. around all the time. Yeah, but it, they're, uh, you know, I suppose they have um, rehearsed and they've recorded some of the music in the house and they, it's really part, like it's been in our lives we, yeah. you know, I find myself sometimes like humming the tunes and I'm like, what's that? And I'm like, oh God, that's because they were, you know, playing it the other day, you know, so it's it, like m music again has become something that has, um, is part of m my house now through Sean and through the different bands that he plays with and it's it's lovely to kind of really be around that again because um you know i don't get to see my parents very often or, or be in that environment very often so it's really nice to have recreated it in a different way in our house and it's very it's you know they work very um collaboratively and there's a great sense of them trying to play off each other and like i have brilliant conversations with nick Harris who just constantly challenges me so they've become um yeah a really important part of our life i suppose Michelle, thanks a million for coming in. Michelle Brown, my guest tonight. I really enjoyed your choices, Michelle. Thank you. And Hi. we're going to finish with uh, This Is How We Fly, featuring your husband, Sean Michaelin. And this is called Tree on the Downs. Michelle, thanks a lot. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of Mystery Train with John Kelly. Mystery Train hits the rails every Sunday to Thursday at 7pm on 96 to 99 RTE Lyric FM.